access to wealth above and beyond a certain amount is not going to be a cure for what ails us in life. It's simply going to switch around the nature and content of the problems that we have. Our proclivity to gather things and collect them you know, could actually be to our detriment. Many of us are unwittingly in this arms race with ourselves, where we want to acquire more and more signals from the environment that we are worthwhile people and that we have value. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I am pleased you're back for another week because we have a fantastic conversation with Dr. P. Kelly. Before we get into the show, I'm going to ask you that favor. If you can, send an episode to a colleague, friend, or anyone you feel would enjoy this podcast. Please help spread the word. And for today's show, who is Dr. P. Kelly? Well, first off, this was a fascinating conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed Dr. Pete's energy, his insights, and his deep knowledge around CBT and other realms of behavior change. Dr. Kelly, he provides treatment to adults for mood anxiety disorders using CBT therapy. And we get into what is CBT therapy, but it's one of the most widely researched methods of therapy and has a lot of evidence-based research that shows it can drive behavior change, that behavior change we're looking for. And that's why I had him on the podcast is because often with our money stories, we have difficulties changing our financial behaviors. So instead of trying to will our way to change our behaviors, I thought it'd be worthwhile to explore the notion of using CBT as a way to look at the thoughts that are driving the behaviors. And perhaps if we can interfere or bring some compassion to the thoughts and beliefs that are driving those behaviors, we can get some change. And so Dr. Pete talks about that. Dr. Pete is also a co-author of the Clinician Manual Treating Psychosis, a clinical guide to mindfulness, acceptance, and compassion-based approaches within the cognitive behavioral therapy tradition. He's also a podcast host, which I highly recommend you go check out Thoughts on Record on all your podcast players. It's a great podcast and he has some great guests. So today we talk about our underlying beliefs and how at times they can be dysfunctional leading to behaviors that we may not approve of or may not want. And we get into what are cognitive distortions, how are these influencing our behaviors, and how we can use thoughts, examining those thoughts as a way to potentially change our behavior. We talk about meaning as well, is how we can bring meaning towards what we do. In this context, you'll hear um, Billy Corgan comes up and Chris Martin. <laughs> you'll have to see how they come up in the conversations around meaning, but I can tell you, Dr. Pete is certainly a music fan and I hope one day we get to hear this version of Metallica 1. If you listen to the end of the show, you'll understand what I'm talking about. 
Dr. Pete, thank you for joining me in this wonderful conversation. I hope everybody enjoys this fascinating conversation with Dr. Pete Kelly. I believe I'm going to make an assumption here, Dr. Pete Kelly, but you may like guitars as I'm looking at probably six of them, including, is that a flying V? It is a flying V. Yeah. My original ambition in life was to be a musician. Well, that didn't work out because I'm here in my basement being a psychologist. <laughs> but, but yeah, that was the plan originally, but here I am. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. I'm excited to uh, chat with you. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you too. We were just having a brief conversation before we started recording. And for those of you in the prairies in Canada, you would know about this recent cold snap of minus 36 for about two and a half weeks. Pete was just telling me that it's coming out east in Canada and he went for a run this morning. So I'm sure you're feeling fresh and ready for the day. I sure am. When I came back from the run, I kind of looked like the Iceman or something just completely covered in frost. But there's something really invigorating about doing that in the dark, minus 36 with the wind chill. It was really fun, actually. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't plan on talking about this, but it's making me think about it again. On one of your podcasts, you chatted with a gal from Finland and she talked about the grit that Finnish people have or embracing the winter. And my wife and I actually listened to that on the way to a Nordic spa in Calgary. We're like, we're fully getting into this. It was mid-November. It was like minus four. And we're like, we're totally doing this. And then we found ourselves in this deep freeze of minus 37. We're like, what is the temperature in Finland in the winter? We're like, oh, okay, that's why we can't get outside. But I was definitely channeling my inner Finnish sisu, I believe the word is, when I was going for runs in the cold too. Excellent. We definitely need to take a page out of their playbook in Canada for sure. I pulled a quote from Seneca that talks about the usage of our time. And the quote is going to spawn the question that I have for you. And the quote goes like this, people are frugal in guarding their personal property. But as soon as it comes to squandering time, they are most wasteful of the one thing in which it is right to be stingy. So Pete, when I look at your career on the internet and hearing you talk on your podcast, I see that you've dedicated yourself, what we just learned, not so much the musician, but a psychologist. And so at least professionally, it's a psychologist who focuses on CBT therapy. When observing your life's journey, why have you decided to spend so much of your finite time on therapy, specifically within the realm of CBT? It's a great question. And I think it's something that everyone should think through. And for me, it really boils down to meaning. I'm a big fan of trying to detect where meaning lies in my own life. And usually some of the indications that I've stumbled across meaning are that time tends to fly by without me really noticing. It doesn't feel like work. It feels effortless. It's something that I, it doesn't feel like work. Monday morning, I'm, I'm ready to go. I, I can't wait to jump back into it. So I've always been on the hunt for activities in my life that confer that sense of meaning to it. And I found that those have always paid dividends with respect to investing myself in those kind of activities as far as time goes. So if I have an hour available to me, I want that hour to fly by. I don't want it to feel like I'm mired down in drudgery and doing something that ultimately isn't going to feel worthwhile or meaningful. It just so happens that a lot of what goes on in my job under the umbrella of being a clinical psychologist is incredibly meaningful to me. And I'm very lucky as a psychologist that there's many ways of being a psychologist. So there's research, there's business development, there's program development, there's doing fun things like a podcast, et cetera. So I feel like I've been very lucky in that within the scope of being a psychologist, there's so many avenues for meaning that every day really just feels like a fun adventure. I mean, not always, but I would say the majority of the time I'm having a blast and really enjoying what I'm up to. Thanks for that. And as we hear, you talk a lot about meaning there. And meaning has been one of those things that people talk about quite often. Find your meaning. What's your purpose? 
And right now I'm actually doing a master's in positive psychology and meaning's a big topic of study. And there's some research that shows that at times, similar to happiness, is if we seek just to be happy, there's actually research that shows that we become less happy. In meaning, I want to get your perspective on, on this meaning and whether it's personal or things that you've seen in research, but do you think that we can find meaning in tasks or jobs that we currently have without it being this aspirational, life-changing role? And I think about this one research that looked at the maintenance staff at a hospital, I believe it was in Seattle. She self-reported having a lot of meaning in her job and said like, you know what, I get to help people get better because I clean the room for the doctors. So what's your take on meaning? Is it this big aspirational thing that we have to be on the UN's most humanitarian people in the world to find meaning? Thankfully, I don't think so. That's certainly not a standard I would be able to live up to and probably wouldn't be alone in that. I can tell you with clients, this is the way that we talk about it. We talk about meaning as being really closely tied to living out our values. Well, they're different than goals. Values are things like being a good parent or engaging in self-care or being part of a community. Values are things where there's never really sort of an end point or a finish line. The metaphor we use is kind of like heading west on a globe. You keep pursuing it. And basically when you die, that's when you're done the pursuit of these values. And what we find is that when you plug into your values, and often the first step is identifying what those values are even in the first place, and that can be a challenge. But provided you're able to identify what those values are, if you have the courage to follow them wherever they take you, both in small ways and in big ways, you're going to be on the highway to finding meaning almost invariably. Now, I want to say one thing really quick, which was sparked by something that you said. Living out a life full of meaning is not always easy. And here's the example that that I use. And I, I believe another podcast guest I had had talked about this and I've used it ever since. I thought it was really good. Imagine that you have a loved one who might unfortunately be passing away from some sort of terminal illness, and you have the opportunity to spend the last weekend of that person's life with them in the palliative care center. That's going to be very difficult, gut-wrenching, probably have many emotionally difficult moments. But on the other side of that experience, you'll be filled probably with a sense of, of gratitude, worthwhileness, that it was a time well spent and really meaningful time well spent. So it's important to point out that finding meaning and living out our values doesn't mean you're on the happy train all the time. In fact, it often means that you are mired in difficulty, dealing with challenges, experiencing adversity. Those are all signs that you are simply just taking on something that's probably worth pursuing. But again, having those values as your compass can really help clarify whether something is worth enduring or whether something is just basically a pain in the butt, more or less. Because it's easy to confuse laboring in the service of meaning versus laboring just in the sense of maybe it's somebody else's life or somebody else's values that you're laboring in the service of. That you don't want to do, I would suggest. Yeah. So on this laboring in your values on, on your own or in the service of others, it seems like at least all around me, people have unconsciously or consciously decided to participate in socially constructive narrative that says the more stuff we collect, the more likely we'll be happy. Yet we can see empirically and anecdotally, this might not be the truth. What have you learned about this pursuit of happiness when people are off kilter, incongruent with their values and what they think they should be spending their time on? How does that impact us? It's a great observation and a great question. I see this all the time with my clients where I have clients who uh, you know, are of various walks of life, various amounts of wealth that they have at their disposal. And funny enough, the uh, experience of symptoms is similar throughout. 
Now, the nature of the problems that they might be experiencing are very different, right? So someone whose net worth is $5 million might have a different set of problems than someone whose net worth is $100,000, but nevertheless, notice that they both have problems. So, you know, what I've seen with clients is that access to wealth above and beyond a certain amount is not going to be a cure for what ails us in life. It's simply going to switch around the nature and content of the problems that we have. The underlying structure to this problem can be rooted in things like we're wired to pursue dopamine, right? Which is novelty. We're always looking for a sense of growth, a sense of expansion, a sense of making things bigger, better. We're wired that way. And that makes a lot of sense within a hunter-gatherer paradigm. It doesn't work so well in a world of abundance like we have now with all-you-can-eat buffets and this, that, and the other thing where our proclivity to gather things and collect them, you know, could actually be to our detriment. But where I was going is that there's an underlying core belief that we call unrelenting standards hypercriticalness. Basically, I've taken this from Jeffrey Young's schema therapy framework. And the idea here is that there's a never enough quality to this striving where if you get eight out of 10 on a test, then you want nine out of 10 on a test. And once you get that nine out of 10, then you want the 10 out of 10. And then when you get the 10 out of 10, you want the bonus. You see where this is going, right? So many of us are unwittingly in this arms race with ourselves, where we want to acquire more and more signals from the environment that we are worthwhile people and that we have value. When really, yes, that stuff matters on some level, like being a productive member of society is not a bad thing. That's something to strive for. But really, one way we can think about is that our home base should be ourself. And if you'll indulge me just for 10 more seconds, I'll give you a little example here. Imagine that your self-esteem or your self-worth is worth 10 points. Four of those points are yours. Two of those might belong to your spouse or partner. Two of those might belong to the outside world. Two of those might belong to your friends and family, things like that. But those last four points are reserved for you and for you only. So even if you max out in the outside world, you're going to hit six out of 10. You're going to be stuck there. Many of us neglect those last four points that we have available to us in order to supply a self-worth, a sense of value, but we neglect that and we go chasing it in the outside world via money, material possessions, things like that. Thank you. I, I really appreciate how you frame that. And sorry, what was that term, unrelentingly? Yeah, so there's a core belief called unrelenting standards slash hypercriticalness. It's basically perfectionism. What it does is it gets people going on this escalator that they can't get off of where they just keep going. They want more and more and more and more. I remember Billy Corgan from uh, Smashing Pumpkins. I heard him on an interview back in the heyday when he he's reflecting back on the heyday of, of the grunge era. And when he had a number one album, he asked his manager, he's like, well, what's after number one? He had this sense of emptiness and having not been fulfilled after realizing this, this dream of having a number one album. And that's a sure sign that someone's self-worth is not being derived from within, but is very heavily externally leveraged in the outside world, which is dangerous because we don't have control over the outside world necessarily, but we do have control over ourselves. I've never heard of that. And when you mix that with, I know that there's not an infinite amount of money, but at times it seems like you can make, if you, you work hard, you know, we see people observe them right now making just so much money, but you mix that with the pursuit of money and if we have this unconscious understanding of what's happening, oof, it seems like it could be a concoction that's going to lead to this, you know, like what we see many people who just chase and chase and chase. And when they realize that there's nothing there, I can imagine anxiety, depression sets in. Absolutely. I mean, I heard I'm referencing a lot of musicians, but I remember hearing Chris Martin, who's the singer of Coldplay, of course, they haven't been able to perform over the course of the pandemic very much. And he was reflecting that, you know, when you're not able to stand in front of 50 or 60,000 people at Wembley, 
it makes you kind of question, you know, where your self-worth is really coming from if, if you don't have that available to you. So it is interesting when people who are able to so heavily leverage external validation are cut off from that, the inner journey that they have to go through in terms of constituting a sense of self that is not derived exclusively or mostly from the outside world. It can be a real challenge. I've been fortunate too to have some clients who have been elite athletes and they've, you know, post-retirement or having forced retirement from an injury or whatnot. It is very difficult for them to reconstitute a sense of self-esteem when they don't have that form in which to perform in and to derive that sense of self. It's very, very fascinating to watch. Wow. You're making me think of this research now when I'm thinking about money and this idea of like, almost social comparison is that people in this one research claim that they would feel happier if they made more money than someone and then their peer group than making a greater amount, but that's the lesser amount, if that makes sense. So they're okay with making like $50,000 as long as everyone else is making less than making 70,000 and people making more. And I, I had a psychologist who focuses on money and athletes out of LA. And he talked about how like the system of professional athletes is you get someone who just signs a contract out of, um, say it's basketball, out of high school or college. Now they're making like really good money and they're, they're peer group. They're, it's fantastic. But then they go into the the MBA locker room and they're the lowest on the pay scale. And now they start having these beliefs about themselves. So why I thought it was so insightful to have you on, let's talk about CBT. And because I feel like a lot of this is stemming from our beliefs, the stories we're telling ourselves, the meaning we're attaching based on these beliefs. So for those of us who aren't so familiar with CBT, what is CBT and how can, if at all, it help with understanding the beliefs we have around money? Absolutely be happy to talk about that. And I'm going to back up and start a little bit further upstream than most might in terms of discussing the CBT model, but I think it's really important to do so in order to really lay it out in a way that would resonate with most people. So think about when you're young, you're born, and no one's a blank slate. Of course, we have our genetic content that we get from our parents. We grew up in our family of origin, and no one grows up in a perfect family of origin. There's problems to solve. We've got you know suboptimal parenting. No one's exposed to perfect parenting as far as I know. Certainly my children aren't. And what happens is that we develop beliefs about ourselves, the world, and other people that are informed by the challenges that we have to navigate when we are young. And then we also develop coping strategies to solve those problems. And we can think about those problem-solving strategies as vaguely falling under things like fight, flight, or freeze. Now, of course, there's very human-specific manifestations of that, but we'll just leave that there for the moment. Basically, long story short, we develop these core beliefs when we're young, we develop coping strategies that map to these core beliefs, and then we pop out into our adult life with our adolescent or youth-informed coping strategies. Now, the CBT model typically is described as having five parts. We've got the situation that we're in, which is often called the trigger. We've got the thoughts that automatically come up in that situation. We've got the emotions that are evoked in that situation. These would be things like jealousy, anger, sadness. We've got the physiological complement that's activated there, like sweaty palms, racing heartbeat, upset stomach, things like that. And then finally, we have the behavioral response. And again, that's that fight, flight, or freeze. It could be you know, avoidance or perfectionism. There's various ways that that can manifest. And what the CBT model basically says is that all of these factors play with one another and interact with one another in a dynamic network so that your thoughts are influencing your behavior and your behavior is influencing your emotions and your emotions are influencing your physiology and your physiology is influencing in turn all of these things. 
And that's kind of the magic of the CBT models that what we're able to do is to, you know, the end user experience of being a human is that that just all happens automatically, right? Like when you're sad or upset, it's just, bleh, it's just right there. And what the CBT model endeavors to do is to break down that experience into its constituent and component parts and allow you to intervene at any level of the model in order to have a positive result. And so we have interventions designed for thoughts. We have interventions designed for behaviors, interventions designed for emotion regulation, interventions designed for tolerating difficult physiological symptoms. So that's in essence is the CBT model. The other things I can say, but I think I'll leave it there for the moment. But why I brought up the core beliefs in the beginning is that how we react in the moment with our thoughts, behaviors, emotions, and physiological responses are very much informed by what happened to us when we are young in that repository of experiences and core beliefs. So you're never seeing somebody fresh for the first time. They are being filtered through all your previous experiences. You're never having an argument for the first time with your spouse. That argument is being filtered through all that huge data bank of other conflicts you've had with other meaningful people and helps you to understand what's going on. So clients really need to be aware of we're not detecting reality, we are predicting reality. And that's a very, very key difference. So detecting reality would imply that we're seeing the truth of the matter. Really what we're doing is we're making predictions about what's going on based on previous experience, which is idiosyncratic to us. So sorry, a lot there, but there, you know, there's a lot to lay out in terms of having a coherent understanding of the way that model hangs together. I appreciate the detail. And for people listening, I, I feel like you didn't sound like a research paper. You say it in a way that can land with us and why I feel like CBT has such strong application to money and the stories we tell ourselves about money is because research around money is so clear that during those formative years, we embody and we, we create these money scripts around how we think, feel, and behave about money. And then fast forward to we're an adult, we find we have maybe some dysfunctional beliefs, feelings, actions around money. And what happens is the financial industry shoves information down your throat. Do this, you go see a financial advisor, and most of them don't even have everything in, in their order, but they put the suit on to make it feel like it. You sit down and they plug up a couple numbers in. There's a red bar that says, oh, you're not going to make retirement. And then all of a sudden shame happens here. Why I bring this up is how do we start to examine these core beliefs around money? Like say, for example, growing up, money wasn't affluent in someone's household. They might have this belief that I got to hold on to money if for all it's might. I can't spend money and it might cause stress and anxiety or something to that degree. If someone starts to think like, hey, maybe I should try examining, like you said this, what is the thought or what is the belief that is causing this cascading event? What are some ways that people could start to, I guess, examine their own behaviors? I think that's a really important exercise and we can do it with a lot of compassion. I think the first step in terms of building that insight would be to consider, just as you outlined a second ago, what are the problems that we were faced with that we had to solve as children or adolescents? Or what did we observe our parents having to solve or troubleshoot when we were young, right? You just said scarcity was a problem when we were young. And we saw our parents you know, making every penny go as far as humanly possible. We may likewise carry that into adulthood and realize that we are maybe a little bit more frugal than might be necessary dictated by our actual financial means or resources. It can go the other way as well, right? So I might have clients come in that are freewheeling in terms of their spending, right? They're just very impulsive. They spend, spend, spend. That might be an overcompensation for having grown up in a very frugal household, right? Where the expression of, of spending was very strongly discouraged. I mentioned before that fight, flight, or freeze. 
you can get all three of those responses in response to the same problem. So again, a household with scarcity can result in somebody who is very frugal or someone who's very impulsive with their spending as a counterpoint or overreaction to the environment that they grew up with. So there's a lot of nuance here. But again, the, the general algorithm is what problems did I face as an adolescent or a youth growing up around money or what perceptions was I navigating? How did I choose to cope with that? What's working about that for me in my adult life? Where am I ensnaring myself in historical patterns that don't work for me anymore? And listen, like nobody gets up in the morning and says, hey, I'm going to engage in self-defeating patterns and form my childhood that will, you know, jeopardize my financial future. Like nobody consciously does this, but we are all subject to these historical legacies of our own lives that influence how we see things. So what problems did I have to solve? How did I cope with those? Are those still ways of coping that I, that I need to keep doing as an adult? Do I now have more resources, perspective, wisdom available to me to do something different? You know, you said the word compassion a couple times. And one of the reasons why I find CBT so fascinating is that I'm a financial planner and I found myself becoming too frugal when my wife and I started commingling our money and we had kids and she was trying to give me some advice and I would be very defensive. I'm a financial planner. What do you know? You're a nurse. And I thought that was totally true. And then I came across this idea, which I'd like you to explain is the cognitive distortions that get created. And I was just like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I do. And then I started to examine and I had heard that people like you, it's hard to escape childhood. Brene Brown talks about how it's hard to escape childhood without some form of trauma. And I'm going back to that compassion. When I took some self-compassion and like allowed myself to just examine for what my childhood was and compassion towards my parents, I realized, you know what, actually... I was a shy kid and that actually influenced me a whole bunch and like super shy. Like I wouldn't talk in university. I I just wouldn't talk. And I realized that I attached so much meaning to money around power because I liked hockey and these guys made so much money. They seemed like they had nice houses on those shows. And I thought, wow, all I need is money. And I started to make money and pursue money and people be like, oh, look at you, Sean. Good job. You're making money. So it was just the belief that I had so much it was protecting my inner child, basically, of not feeling good enough. And money was the way to be like, oh, look at this. I'm happy. But the reason why I bring this up is it took a lot of compassion. Compassion towards my parents being like, you know what? They did the best they can. They were great parents, but I was shy. It's not their fault. So let's talk about, and maybe maybe compassion is needed when we look at our cognitive distortions, but can you touch on these cognitive distortions? Maybe talk about a couple that people might be familiar with, because it really allowed me to change or actually examine those beliefs when I started to realize like, oh, I'm actually doing that. Yes, it's a really great tool. And although not a, an actual distortion, you know, I hear a lot of cognitive dissonance in the phenomenon that you're describing with that interaction with your wife, right? Where you have a sense of self that's built on certain sets of assumptions. She is coming along and violating those assumptions. It creates, you know, a tension or a discomfort. And what we often want to do is devalue the source of that disruption, right? It's like, she doesn't know what she's talking about, or they don't know what they're talking about, because it's an affront to the way that we see ourselves. And I think cognitive dissonance is one of the most powerful forces that we as humans have to deal with. We, we have stories about ourselves. People come along, they upend those stories, and often we'll feel a deep sense of shame about that. And then we retaliate with anger, especially for men. And you know, we'll, we'll tend to sort of downplay or devalue the, the source of that dissonance. 
when you say that, and, and this is your job as a psychologist, so of course it hits me, but uh, it would be levels where I'd be so defensive where I couldn't even understand because I was afraid of being that quiet kid whose voice didn't matter. And then being like, well, you're in finance, you have a CFP, you're the male of the household. Like the toxic masculinity was just pouring in and I'd be like, what do you know? You're a nurse. That wasn't rational, but it felt like it. Yeah. So the psychologist Terry Real talks a lot about this, where when men feel activated in terms of shame or insecurity, they respond with anger and grandiosity as a means of protecting themselves. You know, I do a lot of work with first responders, many of which are male, like military, police, et cetera. And when they get activated, they get very angry, but that just the degree of their anger typically will indicate to me the depth of their insecurity. And often, so they come in very fragile and very guarded and where I try to move them towards is more of a strength in their vulnerability and being able to show that vulnerability that, and that soft underbelly to others. So cognitive distortions are basically shortcuts that our brain takes in terms of processing information that's coming in. And of course, there's a strong evolutionary history here where if you're coming around a corner and you see a furry thing with four legs out of the corner of your eye, you're not going to stop and be like, geez, I wonder what kind of mammalian species that is and whether it's a predator or a herbivore or where they are in the food chain. Your brain is just going to go like, oh my God, predator, drop everything, run, right? So we take these cognitive shortcuts because they've been prudent and our brain is lazy in a sense, right? It just wants to get a good enough answer as quickly as possible and then move on with our lives so that we can reproduce. So we have these cognitive distortions, things like black or white thinking, where we put things into good or bad categories. We could have emotional reasoning where just because I feel an emotion, it must be true. So for example, I feel embarrassed, therefore I actually was embarrassed, right? We conflate the feeling with the, with the reality. Could have things like mind reading or jumping to conclusions where we get out, where we're like, everyone hated the conversation or no one's going to like me when I show up to the party. Again, these are all shortcuts that we use to mitigate danger that we anticipate could be coming and we want to dispatch it as quickly as possible. But, but of course, whenever we take shortcuts in life and in work and otherwise, we're bound to make mistakes. So while this cognitive machinery and these cognitive distortions are very good at keeping us alive, they're not necessarily nuanced enough and have enough resolution to deliver really accurate information about what's going on. They're just kind of quick, quick and dirties to get us through the situation. But often what they do is then perpetuate the very pattern that we're engaged in the first place that has caused us to have to employ these cognitive distortions. So they're a good tool from an evolutionary perspective, but we often misapply and overapply them in real life. So a lot of what CBT is about is identifying those cognitive distortions and coming up with plausible alternatives. And I want to stress this really importantly, not just positive thinking that doesn't work, right? Our brain has a really good BS detector. If we're just trying to positive think our way of situations, like I'm amazing and everyone will love me. No, it doesn't work. It's got to be a plausible evidence-based alternative to that rapid algorithmically based cognitive distortion that we use just to get through the situation. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. On this podcast, we've talked to different behavioral economists about cognitive biases like loss aversion or uh, availability bias. And we haven't touched on these cognitive distortions in terms of how we I know overgeneralizing is another one that you talked black and white personalization. And the thing that I feel is maybe missed when we don't talk about them is this is like you talk, this is uh, evolution. This is hardwired into us. When we look at behavioral 
economists and talk about behavior biases, sometimes there's not always a clear way to prevent them other than like doing things like automating your monthly contributions and not looking at your investments and so forth. But we've talked about cognitive distortions and CBT where I feel like there's really solution focused. And you kind of touched on this with the trigger thoughts, emotions, and behavior. But when we look up CBT, Ellis has his ABC technique, which it seems like what you talked about was a version of that. But can you maybe specify specifically, say someone was had all or nothing thinking and their finance, their spouse spends money. They're like, we're going to go poor. We're going to go poor. How would someone specifically use like something like the ABC method to work through those distortions? Sure. So the, the tool that I use, which is uh, analogous to ABC would be something like a thought record. So often what we'll do, the first thing is to just we want to document the thought, right? We just want to know that it's there because often these thoughts are happening automatically. We don't even have a conscious awareness of them necessarily, right? Sometimes they'll happen, they'll be in the form of images. So maybe a client who's worried about money, they'll have an image of them living under a bridge being affected by homelessness. So we want to make these things explicit. What's going on? So, we, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with that saying in business, you can't manage something if you can't measure it, right? So what we want to do is document the thought that's happening. And then what we want to do is in the next column over, we would say, okay, what are some potential distortions that might apply to this thought to, again, augment that awareness that maybe that thought is an idea. It's not a fact. It's a starting point, right? So we want to introduce a bit of dissonance. We want to leverage dissonance now, but going the other way. It's like, are we so sure that that's reality? And usually what clients find is that if they can find a cognitive distortion or two that maps onto the thought, they're like, oh, wow, that really sounds like black and white thinking when I'm engaged in it. I'm like, okay, that's great. And then what we do from there is we will do evidence for the thought and then we'll collect evidence against the thought. You know, just two columns beside each other, right? What's the evidence that lines up in favor of this thought? What's the evidence that lines up against the thought? And then what we do is that we try to synthesize Again, we don't want to get black and white about it and say, oh, nothing's wrong whatsoever. Or again, maintain our catastrophizing mindset. Usually what we do is we come up with a synthesis where there's a kernel of truth to that automatic thought. There's some reason why we thought about that thing in the first place. But then we want to wrap it in a lot more context, a lot more nuance, a lot more data, a lot more critical thinking. And then usually we arrive at something that's a lot more reasonable, a lot more workable, a lot more functional in our day-to-day life. That would be the basic walkthrough of how we employ a thought record. Thought records can be tricky because, again, where I see these things falling apart the most is people engage in positive thinking. They just sort of try to positive think their worries away. It's like, no, let's be compassionate. Let's understand there was a reason why you had that worry emerge in the first place. Let's sort of honor that. But then let's integrate a little bit more critical thinking, a little bit more perspective taking, like, you know, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky talk about system two thinking. If people are familiar with the thinking fast and slow model of system one, which are those automatic thoughts and system two, which is more the slow considered thinking. Thank you. I I appreciate how you walk through that. And it seems like this exercise takes, I guess, a dose of mindfulness as well. And I know you, your, your book you talked about, or one of the books you have about mindfulness and acceptance. What role would mindfulness and acceptance play in this exercise? Yeah, I would conceptualize mindfulness as being a gateway to awareness and flexibility. It's providing yourself the widest, biggest forum in which to consider all the alternatives to what you have come up with automatically with that first draft, hastily drawn up memo that you're you know, lizard brain comes up with. 
So yeah, mindfulness buys you the space and the flexibility to think critically about what's going on. And I would also say another simple way of putting it is that mindfulness puts a gap in between the stimulus and the response, right? So you have the stimulus, hey, let's wait a day before we make this decision around an investment or withdrawing funds or investing in a particular business or whatever before we take that action. Let's consider, I think the biggest thing is I often ask myself and ask clients, what place is this reaction coming from? What part of my past is informing why it is that I want to take this action? Do I feel like I didn't measure up in high school and investing in this business would be a way of accentuating my status and making up for that deep wound of feeling like not enough? Or does this actually make sense if I was coming in from a place of fullness and and of sufficiency? It can be very hard to tell the difference. And unfortunately, the more intelligent we are, the more we are able to rationalize things effectively to ourselves. We have to think of our minds as being less like logic machines and more like lawyers that will argue for their respective positions. And so it's also important to understand the last point is that we often are split against ourselves. So we'll have part of us that wants what's best for us in the next 30 seconds. And we have another part of us that wants what's best for us in the next 30 months. And those two are against each other. You need to be familiar with the opening and closing arguments of both those sides of ourselves in order to be able to knit together a decision that kind of serves everybody's perspective is informed by everybody. Long story short, that's where the mindfulness piece comes in. Thank you. And I don't want to do all or nothing here, but is it possible to effectively become mindful, go through these exercises and observe ourselves without fostering a level of self-compassion? I think there always needs to be a level of self-compassion because what you're going to find when you are appropriately mindful about your experience and have a non-judgmental awareness of it is that you are going to see things that are maybe not so palatable to your sense of self. And you may have to reckon with yourself and say, wow, when I really just look back at it non-judgmentally and from arm's length, there is a part of me in there that really wants to pursue this for ego. I want to be able to go to hockey and tell my buddies that I'm invested in X, Y, or Z, or that I'm big on Bitcoin or NFTs or whatever, and really have no idea what those are, but it just sounds really sexy right now. So in order to be able to tolerate that detection of that part of yourself, you have to have compassion on board. You can say, okay, you know what? I know a place that's coming from. You're trying to make up for the bullying that happened in high school. Let's find what's the healthy expression of wanting to be, you know, the, the person who we want to be in 2022. Showing off and making, you know, fancy Bitcoin investments may not be the way to go here right now. So you need that compassion because you're going to find ugly, unpalatable stuff underneath the surface that came about through problems you had to solve earlier in life when you were a kid and didn't have that many resources available to you. There's some research around the money scripts and we talked about earlier that we've adopted as kids that show up as adults. I want to get your take on this part though. I feel like money, and this is just having to work with a lot of people around money, is a wonderful opportunity for us to, if we've cultivated that self-compassion, to examine our inner self that is totally locked up by that armor. Because there's really not many other things that we indirectly or directly think, spend, save every single day, every moment of our lives. Money indirectly or directly is part of it. And those underlying emotions are really controlling it. So do you feel that money, in a sense, if we are open to being self-compassionate and have some curiosity, we can really start to take down some of that armor that's protecting ourselves? I do. I mean, I would draw a parallel between things like money or parenting. These are things that enter our lives and teach us many things about ourselves. And and as much as they're challenges, they're opportunities to grow. 
So, you know, a, a sudden windfall of money or a sudden loss of money will very quickly illustrate where your growth as a human being has maybe lagged behind some other aspects of your development as a person, same with parenting, things like that. So I do think that there's always room for a discussion around how am I relating to money? Do I have a disordered relationship with money? Where Do I need to loosen up or do I need to tighten up? And there's no right answer. It's going to depend on how you find yourself relating to money ultimately. But I do think any challenging aspect of life or any anything with meaning or value around it is going to test your mettle and going to give you feedback around where there's areas for growth and where there's areas of strength that have already been consolidated. And I, I think that that self-compassion is the part where instead of running from the fear, and I speak personally, it's having compassion and having curiosity, seek to understand where that discomfort comes from. And I feel like we can learn from that. I want to be, be of course, mindful of our time. So you're a psychologist. When we look at this, the study of psychology, we see it's about the human experience, uh, the basic workings of the human brains to consciousness, memory, and reasoning, and so forth. So sometimes we may perceive professionals like psychologists as people who have mastered their craft, that the psychologists might be totally conscious all the time and make all reasonable decisions. However, despite how much we try, maybe we're not all perfect. And I believe that maybe you've had some experiences on the influence of money when you started day trading or penny stocks or diving into countless money messaging boards on the internet. What lessons have you learned from those experiences? Yeah, absolutely. Very happy to speak to those. And I will just say, I'm in very regular therapy. I have been for a good chunk of my life, despite, I think, being a, a competent, well-versed psychologist. I definitely need to check in with somebody every once in a while to keep myself straight and to keep myself on a path that's aligned with my values and, and finding meaning. So to your first point very quickly, no, just because you're a psychologist does not mean that you have your act together all on your own. We all need help. So I just want to make that really clear and reduce that barrier to entry for people thinking about therapy. I appreciate that. And I, over the last couple of years, I've experienced therapy as well. And I feel like it's better than anything. I wish everybody had the opportunity. Now, of course, it's a very resource intensive process. It's expensive. And you know, we, we do try to truck structure our services so more people can get in. But I wish everybody would have the opportunity. So I was thinking about this last night in preparation for the, the chat today. I think this was around, I, I know I was still in my PhD and I got really interested in stocks at that time. I opened a uh, RBC Action Direct account. So mistake number one, I withdrew money from my student line of credit because I got really interested in day trading. And I still remember to this day, it was this company called, the abbreviation was ADOT, and I, A-D-O-T, and I forget what the actual company was, but basically they were in the business of making the advertising panels that would be visible during daylight. It was sort of like in the pre-LED days, you know, this would be no problem now, but this is sort of a pre-LED sort of technology, something like that. And I remember just getting swept away by the, the chatter on the message boards about like, hey, dots going up today or this, that, or the other thing. There was just so much BS going on. Now, of course, I was very naive and I had no idea about pump and dump and, you know, all of the th kind of things that happen on these message boards and really no appreciation for how much like gambling this sort of is ultimately at, at the level that I was doing it. So I probably lost all the money that I invested into this. So what happened is that initially there was a uptick in the profits that felt really good, did not feel nearly as good on the way down, lost all that money. And that was, a. am so glad that I had that lesson. I think it was, it was 500 bucks. And as a student at the time, that was a lot of money. That was $500 extremely well spent because that gave me a very important lesson about a whole bunch of different things, about being impulsive, about doing things in an uninformed manner, pump and dump strategies, the, the mania that can happen on the internet, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I could go on, but long story short, I 
definitely had my foibles up front in the investment world. And thank God for that. I, I'm glad I made all my mistakes at a small scale. I think it's really set me up to make way more sane decisions as I've matured into a middle-aged man. Well, thanks for sharing. Uh, I guess it just validates that you're amongst us all as a human and we fall to these dopamine rushes that money can create. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I have a, uh, a financial advisor myself and what I tell him is that I don't have the time to put into making investment decisions. So I'm going to throw money at this problem and you're the vehicle by which I'm going to make these decisions for the most part. So I'm a big fan of finding someone who you trust and outsourcing the decision to an expert. It would get too emotional for me too quickly. I need someone who's dispassionate to help me to not engage in what I know are my own dysfunctional patterns. Well, thanks for sharing that. So my last question here before we wrap up is, let's say that you are at end of life, whatever age that is for you. I believe you're in Ottawa. You can be anywhere in the world. Perhaps it is Ottawa, but somewhere that you're looking at an ocean, a mountain, something that brings you peace. And you're on the front porch and you decide to write your children's children a letter on what you learned about having a healthy and happy relationship with money. What would a theme of that letter be? I would say your relationship with money is only going to be as healthy as the relationship that you have with yourself. That's why I wanted to bring someone who knows CBT on here. Thank you. Because I, I think your problems with money are just going to be extensions of the problems that you have with yourself. And so get yourself sorted out first, and then all your, your relationship with money will flow from there. So again, your relationship with money will only be as healthy as the relationship you have with yourself. I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. So many things I want to uh, are coming in my mind. And I, I just want to mention two things. Thank you for bringing up about positive toxicity earlier. Is that, like, I want to just touch on that is that, yeah, that willing our way or thinking that we're just going to be happy without doing the work often leads to frustration. And thank you for talking about reducing the barriers to clinical help or other modes for people to access psychologists or therapy in a manner. I know I've heard you're part of the innovation department, I believe, and you guys are trying to find teletherapy. So thank you for doing that. I think that's a wonderful task that you guys are doing. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, no, we feel really passionate about lowering the barriers to entry, creating the potential for as much access as possible. I am the director of innovation at the practice. So that's something that's very front of mind for me is like, how do we get therapy to more people in a way that is cost-effective? That's great. So in two minutes here or one minute, whatever, because we want to wrap up before top hour, where can people find your podcast, any information about you? And if you could play any song on those guitars right now, which one would it be? Oh man, that's a great question. I think if I could play any song on these guitars right now, I would love to play a competent version of one by Metallica. I'd love to be able to play that start to finish. In terms of the podcast, uh, the podcast is called Thoughts on Record. It's available on Spotify, Apple, all the major platforms, essentially. Wherever you get your podcast, you should be able to find Thoughts on Record, hosted by Dr. P. Kelly. That's myself. And really, I, I don't have a social media presence in, in any way, shape, or form. That's sort of by design. I've got some real, I think, strong feelings about social media. And as much as I think it's a force for good, I, I'm very hesitant to participate in it for a, a few different reasons, but, which is a whole other discussion. But my main foot into the world, my main voice into the world, is the podcast. If people do want to email the podcast, it's oicbtpodcast at gmail.com. Great. I'll include that in the show notes. And thank you so much for sharing your insight with us today. You are very welcome. Thanks so much for having me here and providing me with a platform and opportunity to talk about things that I'm really passionate about. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I really enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Pete Kelly. I hope you enjoyed it as well. 
If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend, colleague, family, whoever you think might enjoy this conversation with Dr. Pete Kelly. Until next time, have yourself a good one.